Welcome to the show. My name is Alex, one of your hosts. Today we're going to be talking about Dyatlov Pass. It's a it's a pretty interesting story. I know nothing about it, but we have some on the show who extensively has done some research on this topic. Um, we're going to introduce the rest of the hosts. So again, my name is Alex. I'm Tristan. And I'm Leo. And today we have the guest who's going to be talking about this. Her name is Mallory. Thank you for coming onto the show. Thank you for having me. We talked a little bit before the show, and you said that you know quite a bit about this, right? Yeah, I'm a huge um, true crime junkie, if you will. So all things mystery, weird, unsolved, I'm about. And I heard about this on another podcast that I listened to, and I did a deep, deep, deep dive further into it because I was pretty fascinated. Well, I'm I'm excited to hear about it. I'm not going to take up any more time. Let's get right into it. Tell us about Diatlov Pass. Okay, so this story starts in January of 1959 in Russia. So there is this um, mountain range kind of in like Siberia, Russia, called the Earl Mountains, and one of these summits is called Mount Ortorton. This mountain falls onto the land of the Monsi tribe, which is um, just a native tribe to that area, and the mountain is on their land. It's um, a misconception that the Monsi tribe did not like hikers coming in and would sabotage their hikes, and that is completely false. They would often give lots of mutual aid to these hikers. They were in very good hands with the Monsi tribe. And um, it's kind of a spooky fact, but Mount Ortorton in the Monsi tribe language translates to do not go here. Okay, hold on. Hold on one <laughs> second. So there, <laughs> the story's already weird. So you're yeah. telling me that there's, there's people that will will, willingly go out hiking in an area that translates to do not go here, do not enter? Yes. Why? Like, well, I don't understand <laughs> that. Why <laughs> Why go there? Um, would I don't know if you know this, but would any of the natives, I guess, now how many hiking trails do you know of that were actually on there? Was there one or was there multiple ones? There's multiple different um, summits located in that range of the Earl Mountains. One of them is called Dead Mountain. And <laughs> oh <it's>, my gosh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, bad omens all around. Yes. <laughs> the base of it is where these hikers actually set up one of their camps on their way to Mount Ortorton. So there are several mountains in that range, but I leave, I believe Mount Ortorton is one of the higher summits elevation wise. It's um so if you're not into like hiking or mountaineering, um there are different categories based on difficulty. Like a category one would just be like, you know, a little a nice easy mountain that like families, small children could accomplish. A category two is gonna be a little bit more difficulty. So think um like 14ers in Colorado, USA. 
kind of those are going to fall more into category two. So you got to have a little bit more stamina, but you don't necessarily need to be the most experienced in the world. And then category three are extremely strenuous, experienced mountaineers only hikes. So Everest, Denali in Alaska, USA, um, K2, which is in Pakistan, I believe. Those are all really difficult category three hikes. And Mount Ortorton was a category three hike. Okay. However, the group of hikers, they started with 10 were all extremely experienced outdoorsmen, backpackers. They were up for the challenge of this hike. They knew what it entailed. And they had planned this, their whole route to summit and come back down to take 14 days. So you said that there were, there were 10 people on the site, correct? Yes. Now, is there, is there different reports of there being a different number? Because I think somewhere I read that there was a nine. Yes. So where the confusion with that comes is one of the hikers very early in the expedition got sick and was forced to bail and leave. Okay. Leaving nine. And that was extremely early, like first few days of the expedition. So um, that's kind of where the nine comes from, because it was nine that, you know, inevitably had some terrible things happen. Um, but they did start with 10 one of them just bailed early so i want to name the hikers uh if you have any russian listeners i'm very sorry for how i'm about to pronounce these names (laughs) i'm not russian i couldn't even pronounce what we were talking about as far as the show before the show i had to take like three or four takes at it so you know what i think you're gonna do just fine (laughs) thank you so that group included igor dietlov which is where who the pass is now named after. He was mm-hmm. the lead hiker. The, um, I don't know if he had the most experience, but he was like the, gr- the group leader, the one who got all these people together, said, okay, I'm going to make a plan and you guys are going to come with me. Then we had Yuri Doroshenko, Lyudmila Dubinina, who was one of the females, Alexander Kolovatov, Zenaida Kolmogorova, Yuri Krivonoshenko, Rustin, Rustin Slobodin, Nikolai Thibo Brinol, Semyon Zolotervov, and Yuri Yudin. And um, Yuri Yudin, there's two Yuris. Yuri Yudin was the hiker that got sick very early on in the expedition and had to go back. I don't know exactly what happened. Could have been altitude sickness, something else. But Again, very early on, he couldn't handle it and left. So that left the nine. Um, These hikers also kept journals of their time, extensive journals, like of every day, what they saw. I mean, a lot of it gets lost in translation because Russian is very different from English. But for the most part, like there, the diary entries were like, you know, what they ate, the wildlife and vegetation that they saw what their plans were like, okay, we went, we hiked this many kilometers today. Our goal kilometer wise is this for tomorrow. Um, they documented the outdoor conditions, which were horrendous. Think January in Siberia, you know, your days are barely getting above zero degrees Fahrenheit and your nights are easily in the negative 20 degree Fahrenheit range. So very extreme 
uh, conditions that they were in. But again, experienced hikers, they knew what they were up against, so they prepared. Well, so my only thing is like, okay, yeah, they're experienced and everything, but like, why would you still go in January? Why not wait a month in like February? Well, I mean, I know sometimes like in Alaska, January is not the coldest month. Typically, it might be like February is where it gets its coldest. Um, but still, like, why would you, you go at one of the high weather and like it just being cold? Why, why would you choose to go? at that time. Now, I don't know if it says it in their journals. You said they keep extensive journals. Did it say why they picked Not January? Not that I could find. Like, it was never explicitly stated, we chose this month because of this. If I had to guess, it could have been something like, like you said, in Alaska, January might not be the coldest time of year in Siberia. Um, another mm-hmm. factor is they, um, any mountains, whether they're just ski slopes or hiking mountains, um, they have avalanche ratings, <laughs> and they mm-hmm. um, so they could have been watching that and been like, okay, this is a good time to go because of the rating is super low. And the only other thing could be also just the challenge. We hiked this in negative degree weather, like get on our level. Could have been a little bit of that as well. That like some bragging yeah. rights. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. But I still wouldn't do it. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. all right, continue. So, yeah, so they uh, extensive diary journals. The only kind of ominous entry that we found is one of the last entries. And I don't know which day it was on, but it was one of the last entries found. And it said, translated over, it said, now we know that snowmen exist. And that was it. And then they went back to talking about, okay, yeah, the weather sucks, but, you know, we're all right. So that's kind of an ominous entry. Now, it could have been something as innocent as an inside joke between the hikers. Somebody built a snowman, haha, funny. Or it could have been, again, something more ominous. And we'll get into how, what that, like, journal, um, some ulterior meanings behind it as we get into the theories of what might happen, but... That was the only entry that was a little scary. So um, they're into the hike. Base camp was in Vijay, and they had um, several, like when when you hike any large mountain, K2, Everest, whatever, you you have your base camp, but you're making camps along the way, obviously, because you can't do it all in one day. So they're going along, and... Um, like I said, the 14, it was, the expedition was meant to take 14 days and Diet, Igor Dietlov, the leader, had a plan to send a telegram to a local sports bar club uh, when they had completed the expedition. And that's how the, their friends and family would know it was successful. Everything went great. And they're headed back home soon. So 14 days, two weeks telegram was supposed to arrive nothing nothing and of course local police could not have cared less that was it was nowhere on their radar they were telling the families like "Eh, maybe it just took a little little bit longer than they anticipated you know i wouldn't freak out but the families were adamant that no something is wrong this is two weeks past when they were supposed to be done we're not talking about them being like a day or two late. This is 
significant amount of time they've been missing. So it wasn't until the families of the hikers really hassled local law enforcement before they're like, all right, fine. And they went out and searched, and that's when it gets hairy. So before before we go in there, they were their expedition was supposed to take 14 days. Um but after hearing and another 14 days go by, so are we, are we talking like a total of 28 days they weren't seen or heard? Yes. Okay, okay. So rescue searches began after the family kind of got on them, and the first things that were found were their tents. And like I said earlier, these tents had been found on kind of the slope of Dead Mountain, that adjacent mountain to Mount Ortorton. And this is odd to me because typically the slope of a mountain is not a place you would want to set up camp. That's not, like, usual for... Is it possible that the area that they set up at was not, like, necessarily, like, a a great angle of a slope? Did they say anything about that? Or was it, like, no, like, this was very unusual where they had set up camp. There's nothing in the reports that would indicate that where the camp was was ominous or strange, but it just strikes me as odd. And as you'll see later, the with like with the rescue operation and then when we start finding the bodies of the hikers, there was a lot of shady things going on. So, it's it's strange to me but it wasn't overtly called strange by people that were there and saw it. But I don't know if that's because they're covering things up or because the terrain just didn't allow for a different spot. But that's just one of the little details that I was like, um, weird. On that one, something that I read about was, um, so they were like a mile away from the tree line, which that's where they should have camped. Because if you're out there, it'd make a lot more sense to camp in the tree line rather than up at the base of the slope. Exactly. Um, two different things I read was one that when they were hiking and they were making it that way, they got to that point and decided to they had to stop and they didn't want to double back a mile to the tree line because then they'd have to rehike it. Because remember, it's it's thirty below. They're hiking up a mountain. It's not exactly easy. Absolutely. Um, and another thing I read was uh, Igor Dyatlov. He was just like part of this whole thing is they're all extremists. They just love doing crazy stuff. And that was one of his things was he wanted to see if he could camp on the base of a mountain because he knew that you're not supposed to do it. But that was kind of the whole point of his trip anyway was to like test those extremes. Yeah. So I read a couple of reports where people didn't think it was weird because they're like, that's exactly like something Igor would do just because that's the type of thing he does. Now, just because he's the one that like would do that, do you think he could have convinced? I mean, obviously, since they found their tent and everything like that, he was able to. But do you think everyone else was like, all right, let's just do this? Or do you think everyone wanted to go back to the tree line because it made sense? Was like everyone, did they have the same mindset as Igor? From what I've read, he's a, he was a good leader. Like yeah. he, he was a fairly charismatic person. But whether they all agreed to that spot or not, that one I can't say based off what kind of happens next. So regard, regardless, he was able to get them to camp there because obviously yeah, they, they at least did camp there. there. Yeah. I'm, okay. I could see that. Um, and I mean, if he was a great leader, because I read the same, I read several sources saying that he was a great leader. If that were the case and there was 
a lot of pushback from the other eight hikers to not camp there, I don't think they would have. Being a good leader, I think he would have listened to the concerns. So I think it was probably a pack mentality of we're extremists. Nobody can do what we're doing. Let's do it. And look at what happened to them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what happens. I'm I'm hoping everyone lives and they get ice cream afterwards. I don't think that's what's going to happen, but go ahead, continue. <laughs> so tents were on the slope of Dead Mountain, and the tents were badly damaged, but not in a like, oh, they're just really ripped up. It was very odd the way they were damaged. So you know that tents have like, quasi doors that zip and unzip that you go in and out of the doors were intact and zipped shut and the rest of the tent had been shredded from the inside so something had spooked them so much that they clawed their way out of those tents there were socks and shoes and clothes inside the tents so something had spooked them bad enough where not only did they shred their tents instead of just opening the door, but they also ditched much-needed clothing and protection from that negative 20-degree weather. Okay, so there was, there was something inside the tent? No, the hikers were in, sleeping inside the tents. They, the hikers, had shredded the tents from the inside to get out of them. Was there one tent or was there multiple, multiple tents? And every single one, the same thing, they all looked the same where they were trying to get out of the tent without using the doors and clawing yes, their ways out? They were the all the tents showed evidence that the hikers had clawed their way, tore their way out of the tent instead of opening the door and escaping that way. Is there pictures? <laughs> I, I know there's probably not, but yes, is there pictures? So if you go... There are. If you go to um, www.dietlovepass.com, that is an excellent website where I got a lot of my information from. And they have, viewers beware, they have pictures of everything from the tents to the um, diaries all the way into they actually have pictures of the bodies in the positions they were found in and um, autopsy photos of them. But there are like there are several warnings before you get to those uh, kind of grisly photos if that's not your thing. But there are pictures. And granted, this is 1959. The technology then is not what it is today. So it's, really, it's hard to see how decimated they are like perfectly, but you can see that they are in tatters. Interesting. Okay. I will definitely have to uh, take a look at those photos because if I want to, I want to see the condition in which those tents were now. Cause like, I mean, the story is odd itself, but I think that's really odd that at first they wouldn't use a zipper, uh, like their doors, um, into now did they, is, is it true that they clawed their way out or did it, did it look like they used like knives or something like that? The tents were so badly damaged that it's it's hard to say. They were they were kind of sheared in some areas and ripped in others. So could have been everything from they tore open a hole and then cut their their way out of it or they started cutting and they said screw this, ditch the knife and started tearing out. They were so badly damaged that it's hard to it's hard to predict exactly what went down when they were panicking trying to get out of the tents it's also hard to say whether or not 
the, um, there was just a small hole when they exited. And then over the 28 days that had elapsed, you know, animals didn't come and further damage the tents either. And you said that they're like, how far were their clothes and everything like that spread out throughout the area? Was it close by or was it like by the tree line a mile back? There was starting to be clothes. So there were, um, uh, there were socks and shoes and pants kind of strewn where the tents were. And then the first bodies are found one and a half kilometers away from those torn up tents. And there are also clothes scattered there around the bodies. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. I'm, we're just getting started, so, Alex. Don't worry. We're just getting started. <laughs> no, wait, 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 we're just getting started. I'm already thinking that this is like the end of the story. Well, no. Oh, no. <laughs> it, it gets weird. No. <laughs> it does. Okay. So clo- the tents are torn up, clothes are scattered. The bodies are, well, okay. So now are all the bodies a kilometer away or is there only like a couple? Just two. Just two bodies. Yes. Does it, did it say who they were? Yes. Um, so the first two bodies were the bodies of Yuri Doroshenko, who was 21, and the other Yuri Krivonoshenko, 23. So they were the first two. And also, strangely enough, so they're found 1.5 kilometers away next to this really large cedar tree. And that is important because that cedar tree is the landmark to which we'll refer to the distances of the rest of the bodies. So the cedar tree is one and a half miles away from the shattered or torn up tents. Okay. And they um, also, next to the, around their bodies, 1.5 kilometers away, was a remnants of a fire. Which is odd, because... You know, if a fire would have been by their tents, that makes sense. That's where they set up camp for the night. Why is there, if they were in such a terror to literally shred their tents and run barefoot through the snow in negative 20 degree weather away from whatever it was, why would they stop and make a fire? Well, okay. Again, I don't know anything about this story, but is now you guys might laugh, but because I might be totally wrong because you guys all know the story and I don't, but is it possible that like people were going crazy within like the group or whatever and those two didn't want to go back and that's why they started a fire right there? Like that would make sense to me is like, hey, hey we, let's, let's just chill right here. Let's make a fire. Let's try to like, you know, get warm. And they, now the two bodies that they found, now did they just die from the elements or did something happen to them? I have a very the um the website and other sources i've used had like body charts of all their injuries and so we'll get into how well, you're not gonna yes. tell me this isn't fair okay so okay uh, that right there kind of tells me they didn't die from the elements something else happened one important thing with them being barefoot as well um i remember reading that their tracks like that they've found leading them to the tree they weren't like sporadic or running or they were like orderly like they walked there in a single file interesting also very odd if you're gonna literally shred your tents to escape something you're not gonna be just calmly single file walking away you would think well i again yeah you would think maybe not but if 
if this was happened in the middle of the night, I could understand, all right, go right directly behind the person in front of you. So it's, you don't lose track of them. Granted, like peripheral vision, everything like that. But if, if the, if there was cloud cover, there was no loom, I would want to follow someone directly behind them rather than going to the right or the left. Also walking in snow, I'm from the North. So I know that walking in snow, it's easier to follow someone's tracks than creating your own. Absolutely. To me, that makes sense why there would only be one set of tracks. Now that isn't too odd to me. And you got to remember too, when they were found, they were in their underwear. So you can only assume that they might've been walking almost naked through the snow and the cold. So it's like, I don't know how calm you can walk through freezing temperatures to a tree. I, I haven't done that. I haven't walked just in my underwear or anything like that in the cold. But that, that, so, okay. So not only did they have their clothes scattered, so the clothes that they were wearing were the ones that were scattered all over. So they were, oh, geez. Okay. Yes, we'll talk about this um, phenomenon called paradoxical undressing. It happens in about 23% of hypothermia cases. And it's a phenomenon when your body becomes hypothermic and severe, This and not mild hypothermia, like just the shivers, like severe hypothermia. Um, uh, this phenomenon will happen where the victim of the hypothermia will start take, they'll get the sensation that they're hot, that they're burning up and they'll take their clothes off. And this, you'll usually see them do this undressing very soon before they die. Okay. So that would make sense as to why they didn't have any clothes on then. Yes. And no, like 23% of hypothermia is not like, that's not the majority of hypothermia victims do this. So I could see maybe one of the hikers having that kind of phenomenon happen, but it, it just doesn't line up statistically that they would all experience that phenomenon because it's not common. So all of them that died didn't, weren't wearing clothes? Not all. The first few bodies were found with missing clothes. As we'll get in the, for the remaining bodies, which are much further away, mm-hmm. they, you'll see, are appropriately dressed for the elements. Okay. Okay. So is there anything else I should know about the first two bodies? Yes, I'm going to get into the positions and injuries. (laughs) The positions and injuries? Okay. (laughs) All right, let's hear it. They're all important. So Doroshenko was found first, and he was wearing a cotton undershirt with all his buttons fastened up, cotton underwear that was ripped and had lots of holes in it, two different pairs of socks with burn marks on one of the socks, and no shoes. He was kind of found in a, like, side-laying, kind of almost prone on his stomach, but not quite all the way on his stomach position, which is odd because his... So there's this phenomenon that also happens when you die called dependent lividity. So that just means when you die, your blood is going to pool to the lowest point. So if you die flat on your back, all the blood is going to pool down to your back. If you die on your stomach, all your blood is going to pool down to your stomach and it'll stay that way. And it looks like huge, uh, it looks like bruises almost, but darker. So his body had, his dependent lividity marks indicated that he had died flat on his back. 
But again, like I said, he was found more kind of on his side, stomach, which indicates that the body had been moved after death. Interesting. Okay. Um, he had burns to the right side of his head. His ears, nose, and mouth were covered in blood. He had bruising to the ears as well. Um, he also had bruising to the armpit, his right armpit, his forearms, his hands, and his shins. He had abrasions on his shoulder, his elbow, his forearm. His fingers and toes were severely frostbitten. And he had this grayish, bubbly, nasty substance that was draining from his mouth. And that indicates pulmonary edema, so fluid in the lungs. Pulmonary edema can happen for a number of different reasons. One of them is extreme amount of pressure placed on the chest. So if you had an extreme amount of squishing pressure applied to your chest that caused you to die, your lungs would fill up with fluid and post-mortem after death, you would see that grayish fluid coming up out of your mouth and your nose, which he had. Huh. All right. (laughs) And despite all these trauma findings, you know, his fingers were absolutely shredded, indicated indicating maybe he was trying to climb a tree really frantically. And let's say he fell from that tree face first onto the ground, depending on how high he was, that could have explained the pulmonary edema coming Mm -hmm. up out of his mouth. That could explain that kind of pressure. But despite these trauma findings that indicate blunt force trauma and penetrating trauma with lacerations, his cause of death was determined to be hypothermia. So he had gotten these injuries prior to getting hypothermia okay yes i mean he was probably in state a state of hypothermia this entire ordeal being outside with minimal clothing but just like with other illnesses uh hypothermia has stages and um so it's you know the later the stage the more body function and the more loss of like motor control that you have. All right. So but the, the, <laughs> the bleeding indicates that, and the bruising indicates that he sustained those injuries while he was alive and the heart was still pumping. Oh, do you, do you think it was from the tree? Now, were there any claw marks or like any evidence or anything, I guess signs showing that he tried to climb the tree now granted, like he wasn't wearing any, any socks or anything like that. So, or socks, any shoes, um, or didn't have any tools. So I don't know if you could really see the tree marks. If anyone was trying to climb it. I didn't see anything in my research indicating that the tree looked damaged. Um, but it there, the damage to him would make sense that the, just the way his hands and feet and his abrasions looked it, his injury, those injuries, the abrasions and such kind line up with that storyline. But no, they're not that I found there was anything on the tree itself that would indicate that. I read that um, they found skin flakes on the tree. So skin flake, like, was it like all the way up the tree or just like, just kind of? Um, I don't know. Um, I just had definitely read in a couple of sources that they had found it going up the tree that um, he had tried to climb it uh, and then he had fallen because they had found that. Okay, so it's possible that he did climb the tree, how high, unknown, 
But to me, to get like that much injuries, like based on like falling from a tree, you would have to be really, really high up in a tree to have that happen. Huh. Yes. Um, there is, and it's also interesting, like we know that blunt force trauma to the chest and extreme pressure to the chest can cause that pulmonary edema. But what I don't hear a lot of people talk about with the pulmonary edema is the possibility of flash pulmonary edema. Mm-hmm. So um, there is another thing that can happen when you're at high altitudes where your lungs can start filling up with fluid inexplicit- inexplicably, just like that. Hence, flash pulmonary edema. However, you really don't see that happen to people unless they have a history of other heart and lung issues like congestive heart failure. Is it possible that this guy had that and he just didn't know? If he did have it, you would see hypertrophy, meaning a thickening of the muscle wall on his left ventricle of his heart, because your left ventricle is your, um, your big pump. That is the side of your heart that pushes blood to the rest of your body. So mm-hmm. that muscle all by itself is thicker than the rest of your heart. But when you have congestive heart failure from the overwork your heart has to go through when you have that condition, you would have seen hypertrophy in those muscles. And that was not noted on the autopsy. However, as we get into other autopsy findings with the rest of the bodies, you'll see that the per, the medical examiner performing these autopsies, I believe he left a lot of stuff out. And he, I believe that he did not accurately write down everything that was going on with these bodies. What would be the point of that? We'll get into that as we get into oh. the theory. <laughs> oh, gosh. Another. Oh, God. Okay. All right. <laughs> so next, uh, Kurivonchenko, the other Yuri, was found. Um, he was wearing an undershirt, a long sleeve shirt, swimming trunks, long underwear. He had one sock on his left foot and no other socks or shoes. He was found with bruising to the forehead on the left temporal region, which is like the side above of your head, above your ear. And the, um, there was also lots of bleeding noted to the right temporal region and the occipital region of the head, which is the back of your head. His temporalis muscle, which is like a facial jaw muscle, was found to be badly damaged. Um, abrasions on the hands, ribs, wrists, and legs, lacerations to his hip, burns to his left leg and foot. All of the skin on his, the back of his hand had been ripped off and stuffed into his mouth. And his cause of death was again determined to be hypothermia. Now, now this is just a long shot, but it could it have been that these two just had beef with each other and just beat the crap out of each other? And then they both like just kind of like got really tired and then they just both died from hypothermia. You would, if that were the case, you would see boxers fractures to the hands because your hand, you got to think your hands have like 26 tiny little bones that are very fragile. And I mean, you can break your hand just punching somebody in the head once. And so if they really fought each other like that, like really ferociously, you would see more bone fractures in the hands and knuckles especially the knuckles and the like um, metacarpals of your hand, which they did not find. Okay. So they didn't, they didn't fight each other, but both of them were pretty messed up 
to the point. Okay, I'm trying to wrap my head around this right now. Okay. Um. All right. All right. So they they didn't they didn't not like each other. They were because everyone was friends with each other on this expedition, right? Yes, and none of the journal entries indicated any quote unquote beef with anybody else. (laughs) (laughs) They were all like happy that everyone was there. There was nobody there like, oh, this trip is great, but like this Yuri guy is really driving me nuts. Like none of that was noted. Okay. All right. All right. So those two bodies were found there. Now, is there anything else that I should know about those two bodies? Um, nope. Other than they had trauma injuries that were not factored in their cause of death. They were found one and a half kilometers away from the shattered tents. And their the dependent lividity, the blood pooling on their bodies, on both of them, suggested that they had been moved after death. Okay. So both bodies moved after death. They're both beaten up. They have burn marks, all this stuff, but they died from hypothermia. Now, what about, what about the other hikers now, too? So the next body that was found was 300 meters away from the cedar tree and as opposed to one and a half kilometers away. It was only 300 meters away from that big cedar tree. And he was in a position, like almost a crawling position that would suggest maybe he was trying to make it back to the tent because his head was towards the tents. And he wasn't as far away. Like the tents were still in his line of sight. So he was in a position that indicated he was maybe trying to make it back there. He had a sleeveless vest on, a long sleeve shirt, ski pants, a cotton sock on the left foot, and a wool sock on the right foot, and um, no shoes. He had abrasions to the forehead, eyelids, eyebrows, cheeks, ankles, fingers. He had bruising to the knee to his knees and to the metacarpal joints of his hands. So the metacarpal joints are the uh, bones directly behind the knuckle, but above the wrist. So those long, like skinny ones, and and he um, also had bruising there, and he had a laceration to his right lower leg. And again, his cause of death was found to be hypothermia. Who's making these calls as far as like the cause of death? Like I don't understand. Like if they're so badly hurt, is it? I, I don't know. I'm not a medical doctor, so it, it very could well be that it was hypothermia and everything like that. But it seems like these guys were pretty beat up and everything like that, at least the first three. And I don't know about the other ones. Um, what else should I know about this third guy, though? So, Igor, his injuries out of all of them, to me, suggest that he actually did die of hypothermia. None of the injuries I listed would make sense to um, contribute to his cause of death. Like, they're all pretty superficial. Um, They're with the laceration on his leg. It wasn't in an area where major arteries are involved. There wasn't evidence of severe hemorrhaging. So his injuries, I could definitely see that his cause of death was actually hypothermia. Okay. So the first two unknown like in in my mind it's unknown i don't think it's hypothermia i agree could be third guy definitely hypothermia yeah he's 300 meters from the tree Mm -hmm. now 
or the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth. Where where the where are these next people located? Well, should I should I know anything else about the third guy either? Is that is that pretty much it with him too? That was pretty much it. He kind of had n- not as ominous of findings with his body. Okay. The fourth um, is one of the two females of the group, Zenaida Kolmogorova. She was 630 meters from the cedar tree. She, her face was down. Her head was pointing towards the tents. So again, she's probably trying to make it back there. She was a little bit better dressed. She had two hats, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, another shirt, um, two pairs of pants, ski pants, socks, and no shoes. Okay. She had abrasions to her eyelids the right side of her forehead, her nose and her face, her hands. She had bruising to the right side of her face and the right side of her torso. She had another really jagged wound on the back of her hand. And all of her fingers were frostbitten. Now, this is where it gets weird. It's not already weird. (laughs) Her cause of death... Officially, this is from the autopsy report translated. Her cause of death was hypothermia caused by a violent accident. Okay, so why? I mean, again, I don't know if you know, but why would the autopsy person put hypothermia for the first three and not for her when the first two bodies obviously were beat up too? It doesn't any sense. And I'm not going into this with like just a researcher's medical background. I'm a, a certified paramedic. Mm-hmm. So I have a pretty, I have a little bit semi-advanced level of understanding for anatomy and physiology and the way the body works. That doesn't happen. Hypothermia caused by a violent accident, that doesn't make sense. No, it, it doesn't. Unless, like, unless they meant, because I mean, again, translation, it could be a little bit off, but like maybe because of the injuries that she sustained, that she couldn't do anything else. Therefore, she got hypothermia. Do you think that's what it maybe means? Yes. I mean, I can see that, but it's just a very unconventional way to notate her cause of death like typically if she if her cause of death was gonna be from a violent accident then it would be blunt force or penetrating trauma the hypothermia the hypothermia so it's interesting that she had injuries that were no more traumatic than the other three hikers we just listed and they were all hypothermia with no frills, but her, for whatever reason, was hypothermia caused by a violent accident. Why was that notated for her body when the first two bodies had just as much trauma as she did, but there was nothing about a violent accident, just hypothermia? Well, I mean, you even you stated, too, that it possibly could be that the person doing the autopsy and like the actual medical report maybe he was confused or she was confused and they were because did it say who was actually giving the medical report where they like they have years of experience and all this or was it something where it was like we don't know who actually gave the like medical report of how everyone died or was this something where everyone was just 
kind of speculating like, hey, they probably died from hypothermia and this person died from a violent act. The I do know I do know that it was the same examiner for all of the bodies. He performed all of the autopsies. It was one person. So that's gonna eliminate the possibility of like, okay, well, you know, if the first few bodies were examined by person A and person B did the rest, you know, that would make sense why there's conflicting, you know, reports. But it was the same person for all of them. And from all the research I did, he was qualified. I mean, he wasn't fresh out of school. He wasn't a baby examiner. Like he had been doing this for enough time to be able to competently do this. So it leads me more in a direction of withholding information than just, I don't know, and guessing. Yeah. So we're, we're up to four bodies right now. Yes. We still have five more bodies to go. Yes. All right. Let, let, let's get into the fifth one now. Let's, let's hear it. The fifth, due to rescue search delays and finding people and scheduling, I'm sure, the next body wasn't found until six days later. And keep in mind, the longer these bodies are out there, the more evidence we lose. So six days later, Rustin... Lobadin was found, and he was 480 meters from that large cedar tree. He had a long sleeve shirt, another shirt, a sweater, two pairs of pants, four pairs of socks, and one boot on his right foot. He had hemorrhaging to the temporalis muscles in that jaw face area. So there was um, those muscles had been damaged enough where they're gonna they were bleeding a lot. Um, He also had blood coming from his nose. He had abrasions to the forehead, the face, his eyelid, bruising to the eyelids, and the metacarpal joints of his hands, much like Dietlov had. Um, He also had bruising to the left arm, the left palm, and the left lower leg. The skin had been ripped from his right forearm, and he had a fracture to the frontal bone, which is the bone um, that makes up your forehead. That was 60 millimeters long. 60? 60. And take a wild stab at what his cause of death was. I'm going to say hypothermia. Hypothermia. Wow. Okay. All right. So it wasn't the head. Wasn't the head injury. Apparently it was hypothermia. Now I'm, I'm starting to get really curious as to how can someone determine hypothermia over i guess like in uh, an injury like that because if you bring a body in from the outside to the inside i I mean i again i don't know i'm not a medical professional maybe there's like things that you can do to the body and how it is i mean obviously to determine actually what is the cause but to me god mm, i don't know about that hypothermia doesn't seem like the the right answer but is, is there any, okay? So this guy's a little bit more clothed too, and a, as I'm seeing things, the further away that they get from the tree, well, not necessarily because the lady she was further than this guy, correct? Yes, she was 630 meters, and she had equally or less clothes on to this guy. Yes, and the bodies so far. I mean, we'll get to the furthest ones, but. The farthest bodies so far that have been found were one and a half kilometers away from the tree. 
they were the least clothed. True. Okay. And Igor, who is 300 meters, was better clothed than the ones that were one and a half kilometers away. <sighs> okay. All right. Um, um, my head is starting to hurt from all of this. <laughs> yes. All right. Okay. Well, well, the sixth person. Should I know anything else about uh, number five? Um, I would just say that for those listening who, you know, aren't really understanding the um, significance of a 60 millimeter long fracture, that absolutely could cause you to be killed. Um, and I'm, and I'm, it's frustrating that there's no reports about the condition his brain was in because I bet dollars to donuts that there was hemorrhaging inside of his skull and that would have killed him faster than hypothermia, hands down. I'm, I'm doing the calculation right now. You said it was a 60, so a 60, you said centimeters? Millimeters. Or millimeters. Okay. So that is essentially point to so a quarter of a foot essentially of an abrasion is forehead a correct fracture a fracture yeah. oh a fracture. fracture in his skull bone in that frontal bone of the skull jeez okay and the <laughs> the documentation is a little spotty but I did find in some sources that these three bodies that we just covered, Slobodin, Zenaida, and Igor, they also had um, odd dependent lividity marks indicating that they had also been moved post-mortem after death. Well, so like, this is my thing too, is that like they were up there for an extra two weeks. Now, animals... They might have come by, you know, like pushed them, you know, maybe taking a little nibble, you know, here and there. I don't know. I don't know if there's because did it say if there was animal tracks nearby? Because, I mean, I'm sure it snowed. I'm sure it covered maybe some of these animal tracks that maybe have moved a couple of the bodies. You can account for some injuries being from wildlife um, after death. And that definitely could explain some of the Differences in the lividity marks in the position they were found in. But mm. keep in mind that any injury noted on them where there is blood present indicates that they were still alive. The heart was still pumping. So nips and nibbles from wildlife in the area, that if that occurred post-mortem, there would just be flesh missing, but no evidence of bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> We've got four bodies to go. Because um, if you haven't guessed it by now, all nine were found dead. There were no survivors. So the remainder, the remaining four bodies were not able to be located until three months later um, due to snowfall, other inclement weather, ice. It, they just couldn't find anybody else. And these, they just weren't able to find them. And so three months later, a member of that local Monsi tribe noticed that there were cut down tree branches and such that formed a nice little trail. And they found this little improvised den. And so the rescue team went back out there. And that is where in this little den area is where they discovered the remainder of the four bodies. This den was found in a ravine 
approximately 75 meters away from the cedar tree. So this shows us that the four hikers in this group had managed to get away from whatever had spooked and killed the rest of the group, and they were trying to survive. But this is where the injuries go from like a little odd, a little weird to bizarre. And another interesting odd thing is that all four of these bodies were found spaced approximately like equally 200 meters apart from each other, like perfectly, which is strange. So the den itself is 75 meters from the cedar tree. Yes, in a little like divot ravine. But the bodies are 200 meters from each other or the den? From each other. I didn't, I wasn't able to fig- to find an exact distance of the bodies from the den, but they were like within sight of the den, but 200 meters from each person. Okay. Okay. All right. So the first body of this little group found was the other female, Lyudmila. She was only 20. Now she, you'll notice that these guys were much better dressed. She had a short sleeve shirt, a long sleeve shirt, two sweaters, underwear, long socks, two pairs of pants, no shoes. Um, The outer pair of her pants had been badly burned. And if you are squeamish, you might want to skip through this part um, because this is pretty gnarly. Her eyeballs had been ripped out of her sockets, both of them. And all the soft tissue around her eye sockets, the bridge of her nose and her cheek, were completely ripped away and there was bone exposed in these areas. Her left temporal region, so that side of the head, and her upper lip had been very badly damaged and were missing soft tissue around those areas as well. Her nose was completely shattered and broken flat against her face and her tongue was ripped out of her mouth, not cut, ripped. And she, I believe it was about 300, 350 cc's of blood had been found in her stomach, which indicates that her tongue was ripped out while she was still alive. And she also had bilateral rib fractures on like four different ribs on both sides. And massive hemorrhaging in her heart and a huge bruise to the left thigh. This is where the cause of death actually makes sense. It was determined to be internal hemorrhage from the traumatic injuries. Okay. All right. So this is what makes me think it was an animal. Okay. So there's a story where uh, a lady got a chimp, right? Mm -hmm. And the chimp just like, you know, got older and it like it like it bit her face or whatever. And she got really messed up. So like what you're describing to me, it almost seems like she got attacked by an animal. That could explain the, the more grisly like eyeballs, tongue being ripped out, but it doesn't quite add up with all the blunt trauma, the rib fractures, the hemorrhaging in her chest. Maybe there was a monkey out there that did all of this. I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to poke fun or whatever. I just want an answer. Like it, to me, this is too weird to like it not have a logical explanation as to why, like how, like I, okay. All right. Why? So that happened to that, that lady. 
Now, now is there anything? She was what? She was better dressed. She had both her boots, right? Or did she? Any shoes, but she had like multiple layers of clothing. Okay, seventy-five meters from the cedar, the tree. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Okay. Was that done? All right. Is there anything else I should know about her? Um. No. That's pretty much it for her. But she did die from hemorrhaging. Yes, internal the the tongue and the eyeballs. While it sounds like that could kill somebody, it wouldn't. Um, those are injuries that, unfortunately, you can live a decent amount of time with. It was the rib fractures and the bleeding into her chest that ultimately killed her. Okay. Okay. Um, the next body was Semyon Zolotarevov. He was 37. He was found wearing two hats, a scarf, shirt, long sleeve, sweater, a coat, underwear, two pairs of pants, socks, and shoes. So he was fully dressed. He was good to go as if nothing was happening. Yes. Um, His eyeballs had also been missing, were also missing. He had exposed bone on the right side of his head. The... Um, the measurements of the exposed bone is eight by six centimeters in size. So that's a pretty decent chunk missing. And he also had a flail chest. So a flail chest is caused when you have two or more adjacent ribs broken in two or more places. So just gravel, like his ribs were just completely shattered. And he um, also had tissues missing from his eyebrows with bone exposed. And his cause of death, again, I think was apt, which was just internal hemorrhaging, which they found in his pleural cavity, most likely from the flail chest. The dangerous thing about flail chests is it's really easy for those bone fragments to puncture your heart and your lungs, which is most likely what happened in this case. So, all right, I, I, I... Taking a step back again, it because like I know for a fact bears will like pounce or like you know like take their hind legs, not their hind legs, but they're like their front paws or whatever, and like press down and like almost like hop or jump on their prey sometimes. Like they'll mess around with with their mouth or whatever. But I have seen bears kind of like you know jump on it. Now to me that seems like a a bear would like you know crush someone's chest like that. That's just what it seems to me. But the eyeball thing, the eyeball thing is really weird because I don't think a, a bear has delicate enough hands to just like scoop out eyeballs no. and everything. I mean, if I've seen victims of bear attacks and you do see eyeballs missing, but it's not like with with her and with him, if you're brave enough to look at the autopsy photos, which I did, it doesn't, it's not consistent with a bear. Like, I've seen patients who had been missing eyeballs from bear attacks, and but their whole face is just, like, they're unrecognizable. With, with Simeon and um, Leodmila missing their eyeballs, it looked like they had been scooped. Um, the next body was Alexander Kolvatov, 24. He had a T-shirt, a long-sleeve shirt, two sweaters, an unzipped jacket, three pairs of pants, wool socks, no shoes. He had missing soft tissue around his eyes, eyebrows. 
and his skull was exposed in certain areas of his head. His nose was, again, completely broken and flattened to his face, and he had bleeding noted to his nose and face. His neck was deformed, and he had an open wound behind the right ear, and eerily, the cause of death just says a violent attack, which is not, like, that's not common notated like usually the cause of death is going to be which injury like a specific injury like blunt force trauma penetrating trauma to this area it's like i've never seen an autopsy report notate a time of our cause of death being just violence now i I wonder if that's something where it's maybe because the body was so deformed or like you know like they couldn't because you said it was it was three months past and even like the evidence and everything like that. So maybe it was just like they couldn't determine which injury it was. So they just had to put violent attack. Yes. But even in that case, like I get thrown back to, um, if you're not familiar, there was a horrific case of child abuse in the U.S. Um, this little boy named Gabriel Fernandez. He had like basically everywhere you looked on this poor kid, there were injuries of any kind of all different kinds, burns broken bones, lacerations, everywhere. And even then, with his cause of death, it was, okay, this injury was the cause of death, which in his case was blunt force head trauma, but he also had all these other injuries. So with Alexander, it should have been cause of death from a, let's just say the neck wound, the deformed neck was what tipped him off. It Then mm-hmm. it could be cause of death by, you know, a broken neck in which bones were broken. And that would be the cause of death. And then they're going to list all the other injuries. They wouldn't just say violent. That doesn't make sense. Okay. True. True. And that brings us to the final body, which was of Nikolai. And he had two hats, a shirt, a sweater, a jacket, fur jacket, um, underwear, three pairs of pants, wool socks, and shoes. He had multiple skull fractures. That extended all the way from it went, it started in the temporal region on the side of the head, and the fractures extended all the way into the frontal bone, so your forehead, and then down into his facial bones, which are this phenoid bones, which are kind of like behind your nose. So mm-hmm. extensive blunt force head trauma. And he had bruising to the lips, hemorrhaging to the arms, and his cause of death was blunt force trauma. Which makes sense. That was apt. Now, is there anything else I should know about, like, the bodies around the den or, like, anything like that? The bodies around the den, there was no evidence that I could find of them being moved post-mortem. Okay, so they, all, they were all stationary. Um, now, the further, like, as they kind of collected all the bodies and started testing materials... Multiple, it didn't say which hikers exactly, but multiple hikers were found to have high amounts of radiation in their clothing. This is odd because A, why? And B, why did they test for it? That is not a part, I can tell you that that is not a part of a normal autopsy. They don't test clothing for radiation unless like there's a reason to. It's not common for that to happen so that is strange why did they think to test for it why was it there 
one I, re- I was reading about that because that one always trips me out the most because there was radiation found. Um, and I do know the radiation was on the clothes from the Yuris, the first two that were dead. Um, I remember that was the thing because uh, one of the Yuris actually worked because I think I remember about all these kids. They're like all like engineering students and like super smart, talented people. And one of them worked within a nuclear power plant. And the two Yuris had actually gone on hikes before and they had done like some cleanup from like a nuclear waste area. So their clothing had the radiation on it. But what was weird about like why they were, I forget the investigator's name because one of the first investigators that were there, he for some reason got it in his head to bring a Geiger counter to it and it started going off. And that's why they then tested it later. I can't remember why he brought it. It was one of those just like weird, he just had a feeling thing. Um, because I think he brought it like during the second expedition, well, like when they went back a couple months later. Uh, but it was one of those weird things where you just got a feeling to bring it, and then it just started going off. There, I can, I, when we get in, there's a couple more things I want to mention before we start talking about theories. But um, in one of the theories, one that I actually really like, I can, um, there's a little bit of information that can kind of explain why there was radiation in the area. But um, it's still strange. Not a normal finding in your typical hikers lost in the mountains scenario. No, not at all. And um, the only other thing I really want to talk about before we talk about the theories is um, the... uh, So they had the diaries, which we talked about, but there were also several of the hikers had cameras with them. And... The cameras were all, unfortunately, damaged. But it's odd because they were able to pull some pictures from um, earlier in their expedition. and But the pictures that were taken later in the expedition were damaged by water in the reports. And the pictures that were found are completely mundane, like, just the hikers smiling, laughing, pictures of the trees, the skyline, the mountains, all that. So um, I don't know any, I don't know too much about cameras, about why earlier photos would be saved and more recent ones would not. But yes, that was, I think that's worth mentioning. Well, to me, so like if if it was a camera roll, which most cameras back in the day were, where it was like a the way that film is, is that it's rolled up. So to me, it's like because that first picture that you take, it is then the closest one to the center of the film. So if you take that picture, then the earlier pictures are going to be good. Now, if there's water damage, the ones closest to the end of that film roll would make sense as to why they, they would be the damaged ones. That would make sense to me. That's just spitting ball off the top of my head right now. And there may be, like, again, I'm no photo expert. There might be an actual, like, explanation to that. But to me, that might be what it means or what it is, like those earlier pictures being good. So um, the case was officially closed in May of 1959, just a few weeks after all of the bodies were accounted for, which is strange because that's very quick to wrap up an, an investigation for something like this. There have been murders 
you know, throughout the U.S. and other parts of the world that were not nearly as just bizarre as the circumstances were. Like, um, if you watched the uh, Cecil Hotel Elisa Lamb case story, like, they spent months researching and trying to figure out what happened to her. And with these nine of these people being found dead weeks, and they were like, okay. And the case was closed due to a, quote, absence of a guilty party and then the and then also which is strange immediately the files were archived and classified by the government which you see that with like military deaths and um like people who die in war or people who are members of like the kgb or government officials dying you know you'll see like jfk you know his everything was classified very quickly but with the, none of these um, people hiking were, I don't want to say, I don't mean influential in the way of they weren't important, but they weren't government officials. They weren't high status individuals. So there's odd that they were, that their cases were classified. And the these files were not accessible again until the mid 1990s to almost 40 years later. And um, when they were declassified and open again, large pieces of the original files were missing. And to this very day, the Russian government will not comment on what happened, will not reopen or reexamine what happened, and they will not speak about or answer any questions about anything that you have. So what do you think happened? What are, what are some theories? What, what, are, what is something that you believe happened to these hikers? So there are tons of theories everywhere between alien and Yeti attacks, poisonings, a rogue hiker going berserk and attacking the others. One of the theories that I really like is the theory of they died as collateral of a weapons testing site. So there was a secret unmarked weapons testing site near Mount Ortorton where they were trying to go. And so it is believed that they were testing weapons at that site and it went awry as it sometimes does when you're dealing with nuclear weapons. And the hikers were killed as a result of these weapons. And because this would reflect very poorly on the Russian government for not, you know, protecting the safety of the area in this testing site, um, because that would reflect really poorly, it was believed that that's why, um, A, that could explain why the case was closed, classified, and wrapped up very quickly with no real explanation as to what happened. It would explain why the dependent lividity does not line up, because most likely the soldiers or whoever was in that area was probably ordered to move the bodies away from their original positions. And it would explain the, radi- the high amounts of radiation found in their clothing. Unfortunately, many of the people who were in that realm of um, work back then are, have since passed away. So that is the theory that I really like for it. Um, because, you know, the injuries from an explosion, if you will, or a botched bomb could explain the um extreme blunt force nature of a lot of their injuries and you know 
KGB officials have done much more cutthroat things than rip out people's tongues and eyeballs before. So it could be believed that, okay, you're going to move the bodies and I want you to jack up the bodies some more once you move them to kind of throw people off. So that's one theory. And I would say to add on to that, there was also reports of like a a ball of fire or something bright in the sky. Not only did other hikers in the area report it, but like the locals mentioned it too. And they commented that like, this is a bad omen. And it was like a ball of fire. Like no one can confirm what it was, but I think that also adds on to the speculation of UFOs or military testing weapons or, you know, something like that. Yes. I see that mentioned a lot when we talk about, um, I mean, it's, believe what you will about the existence of aliens and their presence on earth but um aliens are one of the theories that is brought up a lot in this case and i see those like because you're right there were reports of bright orange spherical lights that were flashing and being noted in the sky not only by hikers members of the monty tribe but also other locals in the area and so i see um that tied a lot to aliens but I think more plausibly it could be um, related to the weapons that they were possibly testing. Tristan, what do you think? Okay. So <laughs> I kind of agree. So I agree with a lot of that, um, but I kind of have my own thing as to what I think happened. I think they're related to the lights and the ball of fire. And I think there was some testing going on, uh, but Two thing on, things I want to mention about kind of what ties into my one. There was that 37-year-old guy. You know, he was the one that was like new and brought in at the end. Um, he looks like a supervillain too. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of him. He kind of does. Um, he does. He does. It's like the big black mustache and stuff. Like it's it's pretty eerie. And the rest of them are like all in their early, early 20s and stuff. And he's like 37. And he was the one that kind of joined at the end. I'd seen speculation that he was part of the KGB, but like nothing hard or solid really. Just, I think that was just people guessing. So he, I think plays a factor into it. And so what I basically think happened was they were going up the mountain and they started seeing those lights, which I think were like nuclear testing sites or weapon tests. I think something like that was going on. And then I think like a series of events happened where it was like, I don't think it was all one thing. I think a bunch of little stuff happened that contributed to everything. So, like, I think they were seeing those, and then I think someone lost lost their mind a little bit because of it. So, I mean, they're in this extreme area. They're seeing all these things going off, especially if you see them at night. Um, I think one of the Yuris specifically lost lost their shit is what happened because of that going on. And I think he ran out and then just started this series of events um, where he kind of lost his mind and ran to the tree line. And I think part of the reason they were, those guys were naked is it, a lot of the clothing that was being worn by the other people was clothes from those other people. So I think one of them ran out, lost his mind and died basically. I think like the two Yuri's and then they took their clothes, tried to make their way back. And at that point, what I think happened is that's when an avalanche or something related to those weapons kicked in. Cause I think one of those weapons set off a flash avalanche, which then basically took out the rest of them. Now, when they were found, they were found under like almost like a meter of snow or something. I remember listening to one person talk about how they found them is they had to take these like giant sticks and they were poking through the snow trying to find a body. Mm -hmm. So like there was all this stuff just compacting on them over a course of months and months and months. So I think after all that happened and the avalanche took them out or something related to those weapons just 
tearing down that mountain because it was known for like flash avalanches that would just come through. There'd be no evidence and it's gone. Um, and I think that pressure was a big part of what contributed to a lot of those injuries, especially over a long period of time. And then I think animals came in a lot like you were talking about. And that's where like you know, your eyes are really gooey. So of course those would be kind of, one of the first things to go. And some of the things around like the, uh, where, where things like the bone was exposed and stuff like that. I mean, I think it'd be very reasonable for animals to have come along later during the course of those months and then kind of have that evidence washed away pretty easily. Um, Absolutely. And that could also explain why it took them three months to find the remainder of the, the four remaining hikers away from the other five. But yeah, uh, there's definitely something funky that happened. Um, and I think it's related to, because the common explanation is always the avalanche, but I don't think it's that simple either. I think no. there was some some type of um, testing going on. And I think that's really where those lights come into play. But I think it's, I think it scared one of them. I, I think the lights really freaked one of them out. And then, because there was evidence that they had gotten into a fight. I remember some of the first ones that were found, it looked like... Uh, I, the first guy who was like crawling back to it, if I remember right, they described his injuries like he had gotten in a bar fight. And I, I think maybe someone freaked out and was trying to get out and then they started fighting. And then as soon as the tents were opened, it was just like, fuck, you know, it's the middle of the night. It's negative 30. Like we don't have shelter in one of the most dangerous outdoorsy parts in the world. And then they're just trying to put the pieces back together and they just couldn't overcome it. Cause the way they were listed to die was like, they, they called it a compelling natural force they could not overcome. Like, that was the official explanation for it, which, I mean, in a sense, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, and that could explain the, um, if you remember, Slobodin and Igor Dyatlov had that metacarpal bruising, which is something you would find from, like, fist fights. But yeah, I just don't think it's a simple explanation. I think a combination of things happened, but I yes. definitely think there was some sort of testing going on. I'm pretty sure there was some sort of avalanche. And and I think the whole thing that sparked it all off, or at least got them to leave the tent, is I think someone lost their mind because of all those things going on around them. Yes. The last theory that will that circles around to the snowmen that we were talking about. <laughs> Oh, yeah, please, please do. So um, when you hike different parts of the world, um, depending on where you're at, if if these areas are commonly attempted and hiked and summited, they, along the way, guidebooks are created for everything you might find setting out on your hike. You can find guidebooks for Colorado, Denali, and they'll say, okay, these are the dangerous animals in the area. This is the commonality of avalanches in the area. It just compiles everything you would need to know to do these expeditions. And what's interesting is when you get to the sections in these guidebooks around the Earl Mountains, especially on the land of the Monsi tribe, where Mount Ortorton was, there is actually a section for yetis. Because in Monsi tribe history, there's extensive documentation in their history um, documentation of their own about yetis and um, their presence in the area. And many Monsi tribe members have reported seeing yetis a time at a time in their life. And a lot of people think that could have been, um, A, what the snowman comment was about. B, it also, you know, this is all just, you know, all of this that we're talking about is just guesses and hypotheses. But one hypothesis could be some snowman figure is what scared 
the two Yuris to get out of Dodge and made them lose their mind a little bit in combination with the lights and the testing, causing them to separate themselves. The other four are like, okay, you know, and we're going to separate ourselves from all that. And then as a result, died later of further weapons testing. And that one, that theory is a little bit more like dependent on how superstitious you are about that sort of things, but it's mentioned a lot and it's written a lot extensively in the Monsi tribe side of it. So I definitely think it's just worth mentioning. I just get this thing in my head of like the Yeti being like benevolent and he's there's all those testing going on. So he's coming there trying to warn them, like telling them, you guys got to get out of here. It's fine. And it freaks them out. And then it just causes the whole thing. It's like, God, not again. And he just kind of wanders off into the distance. Yeah. Yes. I think it's interesting to mention too, that like some of the evidence that supports the quote unquote Yeti theory is the fact that the, the blunt force trauma that some of them had was, so extensive that it, quote-unquote, couldn't be caused by regular humans. It was almost like a car crash kind of impact. And so there yeah. was speculation that that could explain why there was so and why strong why they were impact. climbing trees. Right. But yeah, yeah, like, that's why there was so much of an impact on their bodies, I guess. Like, that's how the, the impact was so strong as it was, I guess you could say. I'm going with the Yeti thing. I love it. I, I, I thought it was. I thought it was a bear. I told you guys that. Um, and yeah, and we're gonna wrap it up right there. It's a Yeti done deal. Case closed. <laughs> I I love Bigfoot. I love Yeti. So like anything, anytime, like anything mentions that, it's oh yeah, it's over for you. That's the yep, answer. That, <laughs> yep, that's the answer to everything. I mean, hey, it makes sense. You got reports of Yetis in all different places, so there got to be some truth to it. Oh yeah, right. So, Mallory, is there anything else that we should know about Diatel of Pass? Um, that pretty much covers it. it was, it's a lot to unpack, and there's lots of strange nuances, everything from their injuries to, you know, report parts of the reports missing to the odd autopsy denotations, all of it. It's all a wild, wild ride. I strongly encourage if if this like story has really piqued your curiosity that um, www.dietlovepass.com excellent you can find any piece of information you ever wanted about this case is on that site. Well, thank you. Yeah, that, that that's great information. Yeah, and lots of the stuff they have on there is in the original Russian. So if you speak Russian, you might get a little bit more info than those of us who have to deal with the translated versions. Oh, nice, Tristan, Leo. Any any final thoughts? Um, like I said, I kind of broke down how I think it happened. Um, it's just one of those stories that are just. What I love about it is, is the more you dive into it, like, okay, yeah, a bunch of people died, but then you start breaking down how they died and all the extra injuries. That's always the thing that mm-hmm. just, it just, there's always like every theory you have, if you just start looking at the injuries, you can always poke a hole in every theory we've been, we've been talking about once you start breaking down those injuries, because it just doesn't make sense that any of that could happen in any conceivable way. So I, I don't know. I just love it for that. Cause there's never, there's almost never going to be an answer, which makes the story more entertaining. And I agree. I think there is, you know, countless amounts of theories and it's possible it may be a combination of two or three of them or it may not be, it might not be any of these theories. It might be something completely 
out of this world insane that no one has come to think of. But I don't know. I think it could be Yeti. It could be, you know, government testing. Because it's interesting that they, that the government tried to basically like, oh, it was just hyperthermia. That's all that happened and leave it alone. Mm -hmm. Like, that's it. And then even after they disclosed the document, it's like, oh, we're going to take some of this out. Like, y'all don't need to know this. It's irrelevant. That's a good way to put it. Well, I mean, you, I, you guys know my thought. I, I think, I think it's Yeti. Obviously, <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, like I, like to me, it seems like there, there was source of some sort of animal attack. The fact that the case was closed so early makes me believe that the the government knew something or knows something, and they just want to, you know, keep it hush hush. And even you said that when they actually did declassify it, there was uh, some documentation missing, but. I mean, we hope that all our listeners listeners out there can form their own opinions. Like like uh, Mallory said, there's a great website to go do your own research. And thank you for tuning in. Mallory, thank you for joining us and telling us this great, great story. Until next, later. Bye.